This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. It's our own version of a fiesta this week as we celebrate the fourth anniversary of our program in the form of an online radio show. We'll cover a medley of favorite topics from listeners from the past year. But first, Natalie Ottinger has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. A million people evacuated their homes in Chile due to a major earthquake and tsunami that hit this week. The quake measured as an 8.3 on the Richter scale and killed at least 11 people. The quake was centered near the coastal town of Coquimbo, about 300 miles north of the country's capital of Santiago. President Michelle Bachelet said she and her cabinet planned personal visits to the hardest hit areas and that the country is still assessing the damage. What are the damages and what is the help we need to give? We have experience in these matters and those are the questions we've been asking since I was informed by my ministers about this. And we are in agreement we need to see the situation for ourselves and determine what work needs to be done in each location and find out just how many people need help. Tsunami waves measuring at least 15 feet high crashed onto Chile's north coast, and tsunami warnings echoed around the Pacific. Countries as far away as Japan issued warnings due to the massive quake and the resulting waves. Pope Francis will be visiting Cuba this weekend, and his visit is having mixed results with Cuba's human rights and dissident communities. Cuba's president, Raul Castro, has promised to release more than 3,500 prisoners today, September 18th, due to the Pope's visit. The prison release will be aimed at both elderly and especially young prisoners. The Cuban government says the release is meant as a humanitarian gesture. However, the Cuban government also cracked down on dissident groups on the island this week. Police broke up a march by the human rights organization known as Ladies in White and detained about 50 members of the group. The Cuban government arrested more than 700 members of the dissident groups last month, the highest monthly total so far this year. The Ladies in White vow they will stage protest marches during the Pope's visit to the island this weekend. Investigators in Mexico say they have found the remains of at least one member of a group of missing students, a missing persons case that has rocked the political establishment in that country. Last year, investigators say police in the state of Guerrero handed over 43 protesting students to a drug gang. Mexico's attorney general says the gang was responsible for killing the students in a garbage dump, burning their bodies, and washing the ashes into a local river. The attorney general says the forensic results released this week bolster Mexico's official version of the crime. Mexican investigators say bone fragments they identified this week means they have located the remains of at least two of the missing students. The parents of the students and the anti-government groups have rejected those findings and used the crime as a rallying point to stage a series of anti-corruption protests throughout the country. Earlier this month, investigators from the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights said Mexico's investigation was flawed and that members of the government and military likely knew more about the disappearance of the students than had been made public. In California, they wait for the swallows to return to Capistrano. 
In Costa Rica, it's the olive ridley sea turtles returning to the beaches in Guanacaste. But this year, when the thousands of turtles showed up at the same time to lay their eggs, they were met by thousands of tourists. And the two crowds didn't mix well. Environmentalists say many of the turtles were scared off by the tourists and didn't get to lay their eggs on the beach. The olive ridley turtles are a threatened species. Costa Rican authorities are promising an investigation into how to keep the turtles safer next year. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Mexico. During this past season, Mexico had our second-largest group of listeners following our audience in the United States. So we say mil gracias to all of our listeners in Mexico and elsewhere around the globe. And now on to our anniversary program. This week marks four years for Latin Pulse as a podcast and just about a year since we moved our home base to St. Louis, Missouri and Webster University. Longtime listeners know our tradition is to unearth outtakes and replay pithy comments from programs of the past year. And this anniversary is no different as we cover a variety of topics listeners found most interesting. From controversies over immigration to insights into the war on drugs and also the growing role of China in the economies of Latin America. We start with the most popular topic of the past year, an analysis of what was a crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border in 2014, the problem of children from Mexico and Central America attempting to travel to the dangerous border region without their parents. We spoke to Eric Olson of the Woodrow Wilson Center's Latin America program about the situation on the border. We interviewed him on location in St. Louis. The question is, why is a family member, you said, a difficult choice? That has to be extremely difficult. Stay home and face all these things but send a five, six-year-old, seven, eight-year-old on that sort of a trip, that is a, is, is a tremendous decision. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty a, it's a pretty profound decision, quite frankly, and, uh, and one that's, that's for us as Americans living here probably unimaginable to, to think about. There, I was going to add one more to the list of hardships along the way. Uh, surveys of the migrants... Uh, point to the biggest factor being uh, extortion and abuse by Mexican authorities. You know, not even, I mean, you know, as bad as the criminal gangs and so on might be along the way, there's a long history of, of uh, extortion, uh, bribes, uh, abuse, all kinds of things on the part of Mexican immigration and local police and other authorities. Now, Mexico is trying to res- you know, deal with that issue, but that's a, that's a huge one. Back to your main point, undoubtedly an enormously difficult choice. I think when people, the best I can understand is this, when people are really truly desperate, uh, and I have no question that in some of these communities people are really truly desperate, um, they tend to latch on to the good news they hear. Not every person coming up is abused. People do get through. There are, quote-unquote, good coyotes who, you know, I mean, this is all illegal, so don't get me wrong, but they, they, they do take the money and do provide a service and do get you through. Uh, and so, there, you know, people are really struggling to, to uh, try to find those people, work with them. You know, people in the community say, oh, go with him, go with her. 
they also, and this is another sort of maybe misperception, we do talk about unaccompanied minors, and technically speaking, they are unaccompanied minors, but they do also tend to come in groups. They don't, you know, it's not a five-year-old getting on the bus by himself and, and making it to the border. Um, they are coming in groups, uh, maybe from a neighborhood, maybe uh, neighbors and neighbors uh, uh, knowing each other will come together. Uh, when they get to the border, uh, you know, it's an individual, Jose or Maria, who's five years old, who turns himself in without a parent. But in the trajectory there, um, there are ways in which they do try to protect each other. Still enormously vulnerable, but, but I think there's, a, there's another element to the story. And, and that's the sad part of the story. They've, they've endured this trip. They come to the border. They turn themselves in just to be turned right back. Well, that that is not quite happening yet. That's part of the debate in Congress, right? Uh, they would like uh, some in Congress, many in Congress. We don't know a majority yet, but many in Congress would like um, to reform the 2008 law that said that people, that youngsters, unaccompanied minors, basically, coming from non-contiguous state countries, in other words, not Canada, not Mexico, would not be immediately deported, but would be given the right to a hearing uh, on their status, which would allow them to say, I'm coming because I'm persecuted in some way. Uh, so that's why children were turning themselves in, were getting these uh, notices to appear before a judge two years, 18 months down the road. The debate is to get rid of that. You know, some in Congress would like to simply send them back without any hearing, without any processing of any kind. And there's a question as to whether that would be a violation of international standards, because by international standards, every migrant has a right to try to make a case that they deserve asylum or some kind of refugee protected status, if you will. As Olson points out in his interview, the issue of immigration is linked to the problems of crime, violence, and drugs in Latin America. The violence produced by the war on drugs is one of the factors pushing people northward to find security. We devoted several programs this past year to reports from the front lines of the drug war. Here are outtakes from our interview with Joe Tuckman of The Guardian, the British news operation. She's that organization's correspondent in Mexico City. We conducted the interview via Skype. She reviewed for us the decline of the Zetas cartel and the dynamics of the drug war. The Zetas will always um, build as the most, the most violent, you know, the big that they were the ones that started the, the decapitations, that they were the ones with the particularly uh, disciplined military-based training that kind of took the violence of long history of, of turf wars between cartels in, in Mexico to a whole new level. And that's, and that's true, but it, was no, but it didn't become, it didn't remain exclusively for, within the setters. It, it spread throughout all the organized criminal world and I think what we're saying now is it doesn't, you know, it certainly was in, in, in Guerreros Unidos and for a while the Beltran labor cartel and the um, setters were, were major enemies, then they became allies. It's, it's such a shifting, shifting mess of allies and uh, alliances and conflicts and it's essentially about weak 
institutions when it comes down to it. So if you decapitate cartels and your institutions are too weak to actually fill the spaces left by um, credible, with, with, with credible and uh, law enforcement that respects human rights, and it, it, it doesn't really help however many cartels you decapitate. And in fact, it gets harder and harder to decapitate the hard cartels as they get smaller, and it's less easy to identify who is the head anyway. Let me go back to the Zetas, which I believe began as the enforcement arm of the Gulf cartel, um, people who were ex-military or special forces that were part of that particular group that then spun off. If, if, if you look at these cartels 10 years ago, the big name, powerful cartels were the Gulf cartel, the Juarez cartel, the Ariana Felix family with the Tijuana cartel. And, and now haven't we really seen a bit of a generational shift with Sinaloa and the Jalisco cartel and some of these newer names coming in as part of what happened with the fight that began with Felipe Calderon's administration? Oh, completely. There's a whole new generation. There's very few of the old generation left still at large. Um, and and, and when, I mean, one of the things people often say is that the new generation is, um, is you know, more ruthless and more bloodthirsty. It's, 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 it's hard to tell. I mean, the old generation weren't, weren't particularly nice guys, you know, so um, it's, it's hard to, to say. I think it's more a development with, with time. Yes, they're a new generation. A few of them have the kind of profile that the old generation have. They're not the household names of the past, you know, the chapels and the, and the Seta Cuarentas. Um, I mean, La Tuta of the, of the Knights Templar is still kicking around but he'll presumably be arrested in the not-too-distant future. I mean, there is a new generation, um, but I think rather than focus on the personalities, it's about the, the context in which they're operating in and how m much operational capacity they have and how much their focus is on actual drug trafficking and how much their focus is on... Um, more uh, territorially based uh, criminal activity such as extortion and and, um, and, uh, and kidnapping. We also heard from Jeremy McDermott, the co-director of the think tank Insight Crime about the drug war in Venezuela and the ties between the Venezuelan military and the drug trade. We spoke to McDermott via Skype from his offices in Medellin, Colombia. We've got to be careful, Rick. We can't taint the whole Venezuelan military. Um, there are certainly corrupt elements within it. And indeed, corruption is a prevalent feature, unfortunately, of the Chavista regime. Um, as to why the, the military, why the government is not challenging the military is we have to go back to, to Hugo Chavez, um, himself uh, a former paratrooper colonel um, who staged a coup against the, the, the state in 1992 before he won power in 1998. He trusted the military. He had a lot of friends in the military and he turned the Chavista regime into a quasi-praetorian regime. By that I mean he put serving and retired members of the military in almost every organ of government, Rick. So they became very important executors in the Chavista regime. And if he wanted something done, he would turn to one of his army buddies. Um, so today, it's very hard 
to challenge the, the, the military establishment. What Chavez also did was, uh, when he changed the constitution in 1999, this Bolivarian constitution that is still in place today, um, he politicized the military. What I mean was everyone, every appointment, lieutenant colonel or above, under the new constitution had to receive the approval of the president. So he began to promote people, not necessarily due to their military expertise, but due to their political affiliation. So we've now got to the stage where the military is one of the most important institutions in Venezuela. And Nicolas Maduro, the current president, whose position is not a strong one, can certainly not afford to take them on. I'm wondering why this particular story Caraval's story, other connections to the drug trade in Venezuela. Why this story doesn't seem to have much traction in the U.S. media? The thing is today, Rick, it is very hard to operate in Venezuela. Um, there are very few independent Venezuelan media organizations. Um, the government has has uh, bought up um, most of the mainstream media uh, and has muzzled those few that continue to to report from a uh, an opposition viewpoint and then for us as investigators when we hit the ground on venezuela we can get no information there are no trustworthy statistics um everybody is afraid to go on on the record um and uh another thing rick Caracas is a dangerous place today. And I'm talking to you from Medellin, Colombia. Um, we get nervous when we hit the ground in Caracas now. There's certainly some irony in that statement. <laughs> Indeed. Coming up, China and its economic role in Latin America and more of our anniversary special. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly two million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse and our special anniversary program. This past winter, we featured an hour-long program on the Chinese economic and cultural impact on Latin America. And that program proved to be an audience favorite. We start with outtakes from an interview with Mark Jones of Rice University and the James Baker III Institute for Public Policy. We spoke to him via long-distance line from Houston, Texas. China is very active, particularly in South America, in terms of importing foodstuffs from places like Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, and Uruguay, and therefore... China, the Chinese government is very influential in those countries because it has, particularly in a case like Argentina, because it has the lever of turning off Argentine import, or imports from Argentina in terms of soybeans, for instance, uh, as a way to leverage the Argentine government to, say, be more friendly or to change its policies on specific issues. One thing that's always impressed me about the Chinese government in South America most recently is that, particularly in countries that export quite a bit to China, the Chinese government has an extra bit of leverage over those countries, something that in terms of ensuring that Chinese companies are not discriminated against in the country, 
uh, and ensuring that Chinese China gets a fair shake in terms of import and export policies, something that, for instance, uh, the United States lacks. Uh, if we, if you go to Argentina or Paraguay or Uruguay, in many ways the Chinese government often has more leverage over those governments than does the U.S. government. And the Chinese ambassador can be more influential and be heard to a greater extent than the U.S. ambassador. We see the Obama administration making some major moves in Latin America just in the past year, especially the move uh, for rapprochement with Cuba. Um, many have said that um, appointing the vice president as a key person to deal with Latin American policy. All of these moves that we see of the Obama administration really are part of the pivot to the Pacific and part of the pivot toward dealing with China. Do you see that in the same way? Uh, I would view Cuba much more via the lens of domestic policy. There is some China aspect involved there because the Chinese are uh, investing uh, in in Cuba primarily for reason, nickel, uh, the nickel resources. But by and large, I would view President Obama's move via Cuba much through, more through the lens of domestic politics. Our policies regarding Cuba were something of an anachronism, and what he's effectively done is thrown down a gauntlet to Cuban-American activists in Florida saying, I don't think that your leverage and your ability to mobilize votes against candidates in Florida in the Electoral College is what it used to be, and therefore I'm going to sort of break the mold and move uh, our country's uh, foreign policy into a more normal state with Cuba. We also spoke to Kevin Gallagher of Boston University about China and its impact. Gallagher is also with the Party Center for the Long Range Future. We spoke to him via Skype from Boston, Massachusetts. The one thing that uh, over the past 10 years that has been a boon for the region is the massive uptick in sales and exports and investment in primary commodities. This is what South America has a lot of, uh, copper and iron, soybeans and so forth. And while finance ministers have been really excited about uh, the sales of these over the past decade and have also have been the private companies, uh, they're endemic to environmental degradation and social conflict in the region. So over the past decade, there's been numerous conflicts in the Peruvian Andes, in the Ecuador and Amazon, uh, where uh, extraction of mining has created conflicts with local communities and lots of environmental uh, destruction. Um, on the one hand, this is, this is not China's fault because China is just demanding that kind of stuff for its economic growth just the way the, the West did uh, in the 19th century. And the bulk of the blame really has to go to Latin American governments for not investing in environmental protection and creating the right kind of dialogues between investors and local communities so they can both benefit. Um, but the Chinese uh, are to blame to a certain extent as well because when they're going to these countries, they're not upholding many of the country's local standards uh, or even standards at home. And if China wants to continue to expand market share in the region uh, and build on the region to expand to other places, uh, their companies are going to need to upgrade the safeguards that they have to engage with the communities that they're doing these mining and infrastructure projects with and adhere to local law. We've seen the U.S. and China pledge to do better on the global stage when it comes to the environment. Do you think that that is realistically going to play out in the next 10 years in Latin America? Yeah, it's important. Uh, this great 
deal between the Chinese and the United States on uh, capping and peaking emissions will be key. Uh, but we need to make sure that uh, reductions in coal production in China don't turn into things like uh, massive imports from Colombia's coal sector, uh, which is one of, the, one of the key exporters of coal, where we've seen an uptick in Colombian exports of coal. So we have to make sure that a bilateral deal in terms of carbon uh, doesn't uh, doesn't turn into exporting the problems to other places. Uh, in addition to coal imports from Colombia, obviously China is the world's largest soy consumer, and they've been purchasing about 50% of Brazilian soybean exports. And uh, soybean in, in Brazil is increasingly a driver of deforestation in the Amazon, which is an important uh, sink to capture carbon dioxide emissions in the world. Finally, one economic topic that resonated with our listeners was the global economic crisis for the media. We spoke with Ignacio Siles of the Universidad de Costa Rica about that topic. The interview was conducted on location in San Jose, Costa Rica. We started this conversation talking about um, a crisis in, in media and a crisis in communication. We talked a lot about La Nación, and for many, many years, decades really, uh, La Nación was not just uh, one of the most influential newspapers in Costa Rica, mm. but also one of the most influential newspapers in the region, in Central America, and, and what was used as an example for many newspapers throughout the hemisphere mm. as they changed and improved. Um, are we past that era? I would say so, yes. I, I, something I'd like to stress is that we, I think we can talk about a crisis everywhere in Latin America. There are places like in Brazil where newspapers are working very well, uh, but there are others like Costa Rica or Argentina where newspapers aren't working so well anymore. And I think you can tell that we're in a different era by noticing how different is the agenda that uh, a newspaper like La Nación is able to set. If you compare this and I don't have an, an empirical study that proves this, but I'm just talking about you know, conversations that you have with people and with journalists in the field, uh, I think there's a change. I think they feel that other players are able to do, to set the agenda, to put their interest right there, to, to make people talk about things that, are n that don't go necessarily through La Nación. And there are technologies that would allow them to do this, such as Twitter and other means, where people just go there and, and journalists in La Nación follow those people on Twitter. So sometimes it's just a matter of La Nación is being used by other people to talk about certain issues. So um, what are those Brazilian papers doing that others could learn <laughs> from? I think it is a mix between what they're doing and a mix of where they're doing this. I think there are places where there's a context that allows them for or that creates the conditions for for, to do this. It's a, an, eco an economies that are rising, uh, newer democratic, you know, uh, regimes where there's a different need for what kind of information is being presented. But on more established con economies or even economies that aren't going very well, where advertising, for example, you cannot, that has been touched by, you know, financial crisis over the past years. Well, where you put your money is, is an issue. You don't have all the money that you'd like to. And newspapers, not only for advertisers, but for readers as well. Where you put your money is an important issue. You, you can't spend. And I think that uh, newspapers are being more like a luxury today than you know, something that, a, a necessary good that you need to have in order to form your opinion, like they used to be. So I think that's why uh, in some places it works, like in India or even in, in Brazil, 
and in other places they're struggling to make it work. So for many years the internet was presented as this solution to the problems that the journalistic field and industry was, on, was having and I'm not really sure we can talk about the internet in those terms anymore. I think it's not replacing the advertising. I don't think it is, no, and it's not replacing the public affairs coverage that newspapers were use were giving because they don't have the they haven't found an economic model that would work for touching this. There are interesting experiments. Like you could see pure players working with established newspapers or working with established political organizations in order to provide funds in order to cover public affairs news. But I don't know. I don't know. It's. Uh, I think the internet. It, it struggles. It's a struggle to find good information with people who have spent time doing their research that that come from pure players. They just don't have the means to do it. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse for our fourth anniversary special. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, Dot org and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Natalie Oninger and technical director Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. Music